Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin' Radio each week. This week, we discussed America's first blue-collar sex symbol, broke down the chaos in D.C., and learned about the growing opioid crisis in America. All this was the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Trump Diaries, and Size Matters. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for January 15, 2021. Chuck Merz chatted with sociologist Peter Eichler on the links between opioid deaths and deindustrialization in the U.S. Eichler draws a line between the parlous state of labor unions and drug addiction in modern America. Could the resurgence of unions finally help America get a handle on a plague that is now the number two cause of death in the U.S.? This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. With returning guest sociologist Peter Eichler, who wrote the study Labor Relations and the Overdose Crisis in the United States. Peter is associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. Peter, do we have any idea of the impact of isolation due to COVID on opioid use? Because of its adverse effects on mental health, COVID-19, I would assume that this might lead to more uh, opioid use. Do we have any understanding if the coronavirus pandemic has had any impact on those numbers? Yeah, it's a great, great question, Chuck. We, we do. And unfortunately, it's not good. It's sort of what we would expect. Um, so the numbers you just talked about, things went to a peak in 2017. It took a slight dip, the overdose uh, death toll in 2018. And then they came right back up in 2019. And that's even before COVID hit, right? So the calendar year 2019 actually topped the 2017 rate by uh, a few hundred um, and then there's some preliminary uh, releases from the CDC it was like up through May, like the first few months of the of the pandemic um, that showed a huge boost. Uh, it's still it's not like confirmed final data, but it's from you know a reputable source uh, that seemed to say, you know, there was another massive boost in the first few months um, of the coronavirus pandemic. So, it, you know, it seems to reason that this isolation and fear and anxiety that we're all experiencing due to the pandemic has also spurred on the, the epidemic of overdose that it was already building for many years prior. And you mentioned in your study how opioid use can give the impression of control over your life uh, uh, when you are when you have a lack of control over your life because of, say, the shrinking manufacturing sector and all of a sudden you don't have a job. So to how can you get that feeling of control over your life through opioid use? How can, for instance, you don't have control over your life right now because you lost your job, because you are social distancing, because you are quarantining? How does opioid use within those circumstances give you a sense of control over your life? Um, that, that comes from uh, a particular theory of addiction that's advanced by Lance Dodes, who's a, you know esteemed psychologist, psych, uh, psychiatrist, specialist in addiction, which I'm not. I'm not a specialist in that area. I'm, I'm a labor researcher, like you, like you pointed out. Um, and full disclosure, I've never myself used opioids. I'm not you know, experientially familiar with how that might influence one's subjective state, et cetera. Um, but nonetheless, there's you know, a lot. It, it goes, it's not just opioids, but it's across the sort of spectrum of drugs and substances. Um, that, you know, taking a substance that changes your state of mind um, does, you know, it's a way that the individual can alter some, uh, can use some power to change uh, their feeling in the world, right? It's a, it's a slight, you know, short-term um, uh, act of um, uh, reclaiming control. Um, and the theory advanced by the psychiatrist Dodes, which wasn't applied to, you know, the economic situation, really, I tried to sort of bring that in, um, is basically that addiction is, you know, habitually doing that, is a response to sort of pervasive feelings of powerlessness. When you feel that things you're not in control, 
in your life or um, uh, in your workplace or in your family or in your community um, um, that, you know, people will use their agency to try and regain that control, right? They're not just going to remain passive, uh, passive victims, um, although they may be a victim uh, in an objective way, um, but they're going to try and regain that. And one way that, you know, they might try to do that is through taking substances. And sometimes they may be self-destructive, right? Um, it may lead to a pattern of dependency. Um, and I was just very, being a labor researcher, you know, knowing about this deterioration of the situation for working people in America over the past 30 years or more, um, wanted to, to see if there was a connection, right? Uh, to see if places that saw more fallout from deindustrialization from the host of economic changes we sometimes call neoliberalism or post-industrialism or whatever you want to label it as, whether that played some role in driving up uh, uh, the overdose rate. And, you know, based on the quantitative stuff that I've done, I found fairly convincing evidence that it has. You had an article back in 2018, and at one point you mentioned an opioid user by the name of Teresa, and you say that Teresa was on methadone when we spoke, found that heroin helped me do what I have, what I've got to do. It gets me through the day. If I could afford it, I would still be doing it. Last, or well, in November 2019, we spoke with anthropologist Jason Pine, author of The Alchemy of Meth, uh, Decomposition. Both Jason and his mother are addicts, and Jason told us when you use it, you don't quite feel that you're intoxicated. You feel more alert, more capable, more alive in the ways you feel you're expected to be without realizing you feel that expectation. So you fall into line with the imminent demand to be productive, to be useful, to be courageous, social, pro proactive, filled with endless energy and entrepreneurialism and ideas and exploratory behavior. In a sense, meth is perfect. Other drugs are not as good for syncing up with an everyday demand that just seems right. Did you ever get a sense from those who you talk to that any increased pressure to produce more in today's workplace led to opioid use? That work itself, not necessarily a lack of it, might lead to opioid use, addiction, and potentially overdose. That's a good question. I, I think in that case, um, so with the, the, the paper that you're talking about is an article I wrote for Jacobin a couple of years ago, and that's based on another project that I'm doing uh, in a town called Woonsocket in Rhode Island, a, a deindustrialized town that's you know up against some hard times. And I've been interviewing a lot of people who live there, um, many of whom have struggled with addiction, not all, but it's been a big issue there. Um, and I think to some of what you're getting at is a, is a slight difference between the substances. Um, you know, meth is obviously, it's, it's an upper, it's, it, it, you know, speeds up your metabolism, makes you awake. Um, and, you know, going back before it was, uh, you know, crystal meth as we know it today, but even various forms of amphetamines back in the 50s and, and even earlier were used as basically performance enhancers, right? For, for soldiers, for people who had to work long shifts, for people who had to stay awake and like do overnight trucking. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, uh, people get hooked on that type of drug or start using it to you know, aid to, to, as like a backup when they need to work long shifts, when they need to work hard, when they're bored of their job but need to keep being productive. My, my experience in talking with folks who struggle with opioid addiction is that it's a bit different. I've not encountered many folks uh, who specifically as a job or performance enhancer. Teresa, that's a pseudonym, uh, who spoke to me was herself in a very, a very precarious situation with an abusive partner who she had since separated from but um, having undergone a lot of uh, health uh, uh, struggles, being a single parent, well, quasi single parent with an unreliable partner. And for her, um, the use of the turn to opioids was a, 
a pretty direct way to regain control in a life that was really throwing her curveball after curveball um, uh, of uncontrollable uh, trauma. Um, so I would say that there, there does seem to be a, a bit of a difference uh, between the two substances that uh, use of opioids often comes from pain that people get from work. And there's noted uh, research showing that um, people in jobs with more injuries, more painful jobs that are more physically demanding, like construction, like restaurant work, surprisingly, um, although that's a very high injury sector, um, have a much higher incidence of uh, uh, opioid prescription use and unfortunately uh, overdose. So the more difficult the work, the more essential the work, the more frontline the work, the more likelihood that you would actually be using opioids. Does, does the gig economy mean more opioid use, not just simply because of the, the more precariousness, the greater precariousness of employment, but also when you are often in a gig economy, you are self-employed often, and often that work is just being done at your home, isolated. So, so even before COVID-19, does that kind of isolation of self-employment within the gig economy, does that promote opioid use? That's a good question. Um, the gig economy broadly has a lot of people mean a lot of different things when they say it, but I think what, what you mean, Chuck, generally, and what I, you know, what I associate with more broadly, and most of us do, um, is the idea of people just jumping from job to job, being a lot of little sort of short-term, maybe part-time gigs, right? Um, that may be totally different from one of them. One might be working on a construction crew for a period of time. Then you might be doing some data entry piecemeal uh, through like TaskRabbit or something, and then driving a Lyft or an Uber car for a stretch or doing some of those things, you know, overlapping simultaneously. Um, and in that sense, I would say yes, both the quantitative stuff and the research I've done in Woonsocket with interviews um, seem to bear that out, that the more that folks are not in control of their economic lives, that they're just, again, being sort of having to jump from thing to thing to make ends meet um, uh, from job to job, that they don't feel any, uh, or they feel very little sort of self-identity in the work that they do or have very little time to develop that because they're constantly shifting and having to shift. Um, that this can at least, it doesn't drive people directly to opioid use or other drug use, but it can create the basis of feeling powerless, feeling just sort of, um, you know, uh, twisting in the wind to forces beyond your control. And I think that, that that generates a subjective need to want to regain control somehow. And it may not always be through opioids, but, uh, or other drugs, it may be through other activities, maybe in a positive sense, through trying to organize with other precarious workers to change the situation. Um, you know, drugs are by no means the only outcome, but there are unfortunately also, um, at least in a destructive sense, um, a, a common outcome that I think comes from that, that situation of, of powerlessness.
The boys from I-94 chatted with William Hazelgrove about his new book, Sally Rand, American Sex Symbol. Rand, who made an infamous splash at the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago, became a working-class sex symbol, spending over four decades in the public eye. But what happened to Rand and her famous fans? Find out on I-94 every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Today, we are pleased to be joined by local author William Hazelgrove. He has a new book out from the Lions Press. It is called Sally Rand, American Sex Symbol. William, thanks for joining us this morning. No, thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. I think, you know, for the uh, listeners who might not know who Sally Rand is, uh, she is a person of a specific age. Let's start there. Who, who is Sally Rand, William, and why should we know about her? Well, in a nutshell, she's the woman who crashed the 1933 World's Fair and became instantly famous as this woman who danced behind giant ostrich feathers. And, uh, you know, what's more amazing than that is that she actually took that moment and launched a 40-year career where she stayed culturally relevant all the way up until her death in the, in the late 70s. Um, and along the way, she you know, appeared on... Many movies. She was actually a silent movie star. Uh, she had her own television shows. She had her own radio shows. But more than that, she was sort of this cultural zircon that shot across America as America developed in the early 20th century, as the whole media industry developed. She developed along with it, uh, culminating actually in the early 60s when she danced for the Apollo astronauts at the opening of the Houston, uh, at actually Houston Astrodome, where or now the Houston Coliseum, uh, where they inaugurated Mission Control. So this is just sort of a thumbnail, but um, you know she's one of these people in history who few people have heard of. Some some people may have, but in in actual fact, she definitely belongs in our sort of cultural historical ideology. So. Uh- just to back up for a second, she started out, of course, this Sally Rand, uh, for people who are not familiar with her backstory, uh, grew up in Missouri. She was a poor girl from the Ozarks, and she initially made her name, as you mentioned in the book, in silent films. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille called her the most beautiful woman in Hollywood. And one of the things that's striking to me in your book, William, is that she actually was a, a pretty decent actress, uh, but like so many women in her era, she could not make the transition to talkies. And I kind of wanted to start there because yeah. it strikes me that someone who had the um, cojones, let's say, to stand up in front of 100,000 people naked uh, at the Chicago World's Fair here in our city, I thought it was strange that, you know, you mentioned in the book that she lacked the kind of confidence to make that transition, and as a result, went from someone who was a, again, uh, an up-and-comer in in the early days of film, to someone who uh, is really kind of rec- you know remembered now as a member of a burlesque performance, and she wasn't even a burlesque performer. Could you address that a little bit? Because I think that's kind of psychologically interesting about her. Yeah, um, she had a terrible speaking voice to begin with, and when uh, you know, Al Jolson, the jazz singer, came along. And she had to do a sound test. She had an Ozark accent and a lisp. So she was out. And, you know, Sally Rand, uh, for your listeners, had a strange ability to put herself in the middle of what was happening, which also brings to that whole thing of fame. Why does fame touch some people and and not others? So so her career crashes. She's uh, it's the worst year of the Great Depression, 1933. She's sleeping in alleys. Uh, She's broke. And yet 
yet there is this fair coming, this 1933 World's Fair, Century of Progress in Chicago. And this is going to be her moment to, to, to relaunch herself. But, but you're absolutely right. Cecil, Cecil Beta Mills changes her name to Sally Rand um, from Harriet Beck. She's essentially a hillbilly. And she, she you know, her, her career just, just is totally destroyed by the talkies. And yet she's now going to do this one thing that's going to turn her life around and immortalize her forever. William, you want to talk a little bit about the World's Fair and how important this was in this time? Because I don't think we can grasp, you know, in this day of you know, where we, you know, have the internet and sports and things like that to occupy our time. But I mean, the World's Fair was a huge deal. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Great question. Yeah, the World's Fair uh, of 33, World's Fairs in general were the television, the Netflix of their time. You could not uh, just reach out and get entertainment. You were stuck in your town. Only 10% of the people owned the car. Nobody flew. So so the World's Fair introduced you to the a much bigger world and an exotic world. And Chicago, being Chicago, um, you know, had planned this thing for 10 years. Well, here comes, you know, this, this terrible Great Depression. Chicago was devastated. You know, and I wrote another book, Al Capone and the 33 World's Fair. Um, and, and this book spun off from that. Um, and, and they had gangsta, you know, they had Al Capone. They, nobody wanted to come to Chicago. And yet they had this fair in just this horrible year, no money. Nobody has any money to spend on it. And, you know, the thought is, well, maybe this will jumpstart the economy. Um, but, you know, in answer to your question, yes, the, these were actually World's Fairs. This is where people from all over the world would come there, like sort of moss to a light. You know, uh, just to give you an example, Judy Garland, um, she was there. Of course, she's not famous yet because she won't become famous till 39 um, for The Wizard of Oz. But she's there with her, sis her sister and her mother. They have a horrible singing and dancing act. Her words, not mine. And um, she gets in a fight with her mother and leaves the World's Fair, um, goes to the Biograph Theater. Why? Because it's air conditioned. Sees a guy she thinks is famous, asks him for his autograph. He's shot dead three hours later in the alleys, John Dillinger, which shows you a couple of things. One is that everybody came to these things and, and you know, culturally they were the center. So Sally Rand being there at this time was serendipitous, but also it was something a certain kind of person could only take advantage of. I actually mark that up in the book about Judy Garland meeting Dillinger. I was going to ask you if that was, uh, if, if there's a documentation on that or if that's just a, perhaps a legend, but that is true, huh? That actually comes from a radio interview she gave 20 years later. Oh, okay. Where she tells that story. And it does sound, you know, like hyperbole, but um, in actual fact, uh, <laughs> You know, she was struggling along with everybody else. And, uh, you know, everybody wanted a job at the World's Fair. And so Sally Rand, who was dancing at the Paramount Club, um, you know, she had actually, uh, she was sleeping in an alley. She um, had this tryout coming up. And so she stops in a secondhand store on State Street and gets these uh, feathers, these huge seven foot ostrich feathers and goes down and tries out. Her outfit doesn't fit. And the woman next to her says, why don't you just go on naked? And so she does. And just so you listeners know, this is not, Sally Rand was not just this woman who's, okay, I'm going to be naked behind these feathers. Maybe I can get people interested. 
she actually wanted to be a ballerina at one point and and her dance is based on Pavlov's dying swan which was you know this Russian ballerina who she'd seen as a little girl so and, and the essence of the dance is is death you know which is you know life rises up and then death and and so when she uh, does this dance people you know are transported to a degree we can talk about that a little more um, but uh, anyway she gets a job at the Paramount and then she sets her sights on the World's Fair. And, you know, that's a good I actually wanted to ask you about that because so much of Sally Rand's career starts out here in Chicago. What was it about this particular situation? Was it desperation that, that pushed her to do this? Yeah. Um, right. So she, as you say, she's working at this Paramount Club and, you know, gangsters, including Al Capone, and, uh, are drifting in and out. Um, and so at this point, you know, her fan dance is is essentially just you know taking place in this sort of strip club arena. Now the thing that changes it is after she tries to go to the World's Fair, they go, no, we don't need you. She hatches a plan. She gets a boat. She paints her body white. She gets a white horse on the opening night of the World's Fair. All the muckety mucks are there. You know, it's there's a stage, um, and so Sally ran. And for your listeners. The World's Fair took place on what's today called Northern Island. So it's actually off the, the edge of the shore of Chicago. And so on the night of this fair, she puts the horse on the boat, the boat, and they go around to the back of a yacht landing. Um, she gets off and she has nothing on but this uh, a cape and this white, white makeup, gallops through the Chicago World's Fair grounds, up to the stage, the horse jumps up onto the stage, rears up, all these photographers take her picture, they go, oh my God, a naked woman on a white horse, it's the opening of the Chicago World's Fair. She's immediately arrested and then immediately hired. And, and this is what's hard to believe, she becomes the number one financial draw of the Chicago World's Fair, literally taking the fair from the red into the black. Now, coming out of all this, all right, she becomes famous overnight, um, and the question is, why did people line up to see her? Um, you know, you, you have her doing 17 dances a day, seven minutes a piece, and people just can't get enough of it. Well, this gets very interesting because really what they're seeing is this woman dancing to Brahms under a blue light uh, with these feathers. And, you know, today we can turn on our television and we're gone. You know, we, we can escape the pandemic for a while. We, we but people couldn't do that in 1933. But when they went in there for those seven minutes, they were gone. It was, you know, it was hope. It was escapism. And then Sally Rand, who started to make $5,000 a week as a dancer in Depression or Dollars, became this sort of rags to riches story. And, you know, I might as well add this. She had this strange girl next quality, a girl next door quality to her that, that people could relate to as well. So you put all this together, you put it into the World's Fair motif, which had a, a mother load of media that made her literally famous overnight. And you have this strange combustion, which produces fame. Watch out for the potholes. Yeah, 32nd is just brutal. How can they leave the street like this in front of a school? The city debt works. I'm pretty sure half the street has fallen into the Copro's basement at this point. Mother I just bought that tire. Wow, that hole's huge. What the hell was that? Katie ran over a pothole. It's fine. Are you sure? 
I'd probably shoot that car and put it out of his misery. Right. No, it's not a Yugo. Hey, do you, do you guys hear that? Uh, it sounds like it's coming from under your tire. Did you guys hit someone? Quick, we better torch the car now before We're the cops We're not burning get anything. Jesus. Help me push the car back. Kyle? Uh, why is he wearing yeah. a uniform? Why is someone under the street in the first uh, place? How is that even possible? Oh, hey, guys. Oh, those fallen street racks really hurt my champ area. Oh. Uh, Jess, what uh. are you guys doing down there? Uh, Kyle's showing me around the underside. There's tunnels running all through Bridgeport. Come on down. Uh, I'm not so good with confined spaces. Ah, yes, your deadly fun allergy. Come on, guys. Leave old man Trekker up there. The door's right in the back of the Copro. Oh, it's huge down here and super creepy. I don't get it. How is there all this room underneath the streets? Say, Jess, why don't you give them a history lesson? Okay, so all the streets in Bridgeport were raised in the 1850s by 14 feet due to flooding. That left all these tunnels. They go all the way up to uptown. Yeah, that El Cazone guy used to use them for the bubbles right under the cops' noses. But Kyle, why are you wearing a uniform? Well, Professor Shannington, I'm a dutifully monetized and bonded member of Tristero, the Undertown Postal Society. And these tunnels is how we deliver the messages from the world beyond. You're an underground mailman? You're the least reliable person I know. I am deeply recognizated in that remark, Shannon. I've been delivering the Undertown mail since the 1950s, I'll have you know. While that almost certainly can't be true, Shanna, the most important information is that there's a dead letter office down here. Unclaimed goods. Okay. Brought my knife, ready for inspection. Hey, I can't stand around here all day jibber-jabbering. The man leads delivering. So if you guys want to come along, I only got about a dozen more stops. Whoa, that's a pretty sweet mail cart you have there. Yeah, we put a lot of tires from Bridgeport on these old rail carts. Now, you gotta stick close, because it ain't all fun and games down here. What's uh, with the musical cues, Kyle? That's a signal to level up, Jess. You're all gonna need infinite hit points for this job. Please turn off the boombox. Ah, you are not as fun as you claim. All right, kids, we gotta stop by Cheddar's house. He's the guy who gets that giant stack of magazines right there. Gigantic asses? Beautiful burrows? <whistles> Look at the hooves on Donkey Miss April. Yeah, he handles all the beasts of burden. You need him down here. Ah, there you go. And the next stop is the gas plant, where we turn all your waste into the beautiful clean fuel that powers Undertown. Gross. It smells like a sewer. It is a sewer. Waste snot wants snot. That's what we say. Oh, what's the spur coming up? Just grab the lever. What lever? The one on your left. The other left. Oh, no, this is terrible. We're still on the rails. It can't be that bad. No, you don't understand. We're headed into Underport's Bridge. Kyle, you just lost boombox privileges for a week. Submit. 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 Is that a squid on the back of their head? Quick, Jess. Grab me my whack and shovel. They've been taken over by the flying cavalons. That's a frying pan, you idiot. Whack them good, Jess. No mercy. There's an ink sack? It's everywhere? Get it in your mouth. Thanks will burrow through your stomach. I'm whacking. I'm whacking. They just keep coming. You will bow before Cyoctorax. We're going over the falls in the Palmasano. Hang on, guys. Oh my god, that's cold. Where the heck are we? And why do I want sushi? Oh, thank heavens you made it. Physically, perhaps. I, I think I lost three or four sanity points. That's nothing but the life of an undertown mailman, Jess. 
What do you say we get this cart back up on the rails and I'll give you rides back to the Copro? No! Uh, okay, but you don't have to be rude about it. This week on the Trump Diaries, Fiverr dead as the nation reels from a coup attempt, Twitter and Facebook deplatform Trump, Parler is shut down by big tech, businesses flee and corporations punish congressmen, and the House impeaches Trump again. You can't make this stuff up. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1450, January 8th. Trump acknowledged for the first time he will leave office. He did not, however, admit defeat. Quote, even though I totally disagree with the outcome of the election and the facts bear me out, nevertheless, there will be an orderly transition on January 20th. While this represents the end of the greatest first term in presidential history, it's only the beginning of our fight to make America great again. Trump apparently then had second thoughts about that message and posted a video of himself repeating baseless claims that the election had been stolen while urging his supporters who had stormed the Capitol to go home. In a separate video played at the Republican National Committee winner meeting, Trump thanked the committee members for their loyalty. Trump then announced he would not attend Biden's inauguration two days after inciting a deadly riot at the Capitol. Trump is the first president in more than 150 years and only the fourth in American history to skip the ceremony. Biden addressed Trump's decision saying, quote, it's a good thing him not showing up. It's one of the few things he and I have ever agreed on. In response to that post, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram all suspended Trump's accounts. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said Trump would be banned from Facebook and Instagram indefinitely. The ban will not be lifted before Inauguration Day. Twitter permanently suspended Trump, accusing him of inciting violence. Shopify then removed all online stores run by the Trump Organization and the Trump campaign. White House counsel Pat Cipollone reportedly instructed officials not to speak to Trump so they could reduce the chance they could not be prosecuted for treason under the Sedition Act. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo also discussed invoking the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office. Meanwhile, Trump has told aides and advisors he wants to pardon himself before leaving office. In multiple conversations since the election, Trump has asked whether he should pardon himself, including what the legal and political implications would be. Trump has also asked about preemptive pardons for Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, and Rudy Giuliani. Multiple Trump administration officials resigned after a violent mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, including Elaine Chao, Mick Mulvaney, Matthew Pottinger, John Costello, Tyler Goodspeed, Stephanie Grisham, Ricky Nassetta, Sarah Matthews, and others. Mulvaney reportedly called Secretary of State Pompeo and told him, quote, I can't do it. I can't stay. Meanwhile, in the aftermath of all this, Trump found time to award Medals of Freedom to three golf professionals. Day 1451, January 9th. Prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office have opened a murder investigation to the death of a Capitol Police officer who died after being hit with a fire extinguisher wielded by members of the violent mob of Trump supporters at the Capitol. The FBI is also involved. Nancy Pelosi spoke to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in a remarkable breach of the chain of command about, quote, preventing an unstable president from initiating military hostilities or accessing the nuclear codes. Pelosi said, quote, the situation of this unhinged president could not be more dangerous, and we must do everything we can to protect the American people. Pelosi said General Mark Milley assured her that there are safeguards in place. 
Dominion Voting Systems has sued alleged lawyer Sidney Powell for defamation, demanding more than $1.3 billion in damages for spreading wild and demonstrably false allegations. Powell pushed Trump's attempts to overturn election results and claimed that Dominion Voting Systems, which is based in Toronto, is run out of Venezuela. Political appointees at the U.S. Census Bureau reportedly made it a number one priority to produce data on documented and undocumented immigrants, according to a report from the whistleblowers at the Commerce Department's Inspector General's office. Commerce Department Inspector General Peggy Gustafson said, career employees informed us they are under significant pressure to produce this technical report. Bureau employees informed the OIG that this data is not ready for publication with these unsettled issues, and a resolution is not possible by a recently issued deadline. Bureau whistleblowers believe this report is being rushed without legitimate reason and will result in an inferior burial project. Day 1452, January 10th, new details developed about the aftermath of the riot at the Capitol building. Hiding in a secret location away from the Capitol, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy apparently appealed personally to Jared Kushner, while senior advisor Lindsey Graham phoned Ivanka Trump. Kellyanne Conway called an aide who she knew was standing at Trump's side. However, as senators and House members were trapped in the Capitol and begging for immediate help, Trump was too busy watching TV, images of the crisis unfolding around him to act or even bother to answer the phone. Quote, he was hard to reach and you know why? Because it was live TV, said one advisor. If it's TiVo, he just hits pause and takes the calls. If it's live TV, he watches it and he was just watching it all unfold. Trump reportedly was entranced by the images of the violence. Many people said his behavior was monstrous. And while pro-Trump rioters were bludgeoning a police officer to death, Melania Trump was reportedly overseeing a photo shoot of her rugs. Aides asked her if she would release a statement urging calm as the mayhem escalated. Melania replied, no. She asked that the focus be on her photo project. It seems that Melania hopes to release a coffee table book about all the lovely objects she has collected. Trump privately and falsely blamed Antifa people for storming the Capitol despite overwhelming evidence showing the rioters were Trump supporters. And the PGA of America announced it would strip Trump's New Jersey Golf Club of a major tournament. The PGA Championship, scheduled for May 2022, was the ultimate golf world trophy for the Trump brand. Trump was said to be gutted by the PGA decision. Day 1453, January 11th. Momentum is now growing to impeach Trump for a second time with the news that one article of impeachment on charges of sedition has gathered 190 sponsors in the House. Privately, Republicans say there is sufficient anger against Trump that a conviction in the Senate is not out of the question. Two Republican senators, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, called for Trump to resign and go away as soon as possible. Also, as more details emerge of the failed insurrection, it is becoming clear that several congressmen were in imminent danger. A new timetable shows that several congressmen were just minutes away from being attacked. New footage shows rioters were looking to confront, harm, and in some cases kill members of Congress. Notably, a man was charged with threatening Speaker Pelosi with an assault rifle. Trump lawyer Lynn Wood also publicly called for Vice President Mike Pence to be shot during the riot. Five people, including a member of the Capitol Police, died in that attack. Several Capitol Police officers have now been suspended, and more than a dozen others are in investigation for their suspected involvement in allowing the rioters to gain access. In the weekend show of force from big tech, Amazon, Apple, and Google effectively cut off far-right blogging surface Parler from American phones. Citing violent posts, Apple and Google removed the app from their stores. Amazon then kicked the app off its cloud servers, effectively nuking it. 
In a related story, Twitter's deplatforming of Trump was driven by what the company said were credible reports of a looming secondary attack on the Capitol and state government facilities this coming weekend. The moves drew applause as well as concern from free speech advocates who noted the outsized role big tech now has in the public commons. Pandemic numbers continue to increase in the United States. We passed 22 million cases in the U.S. this past weekend. Morgan Stanley is suspending all PAC contributions to members of Congress who did not vote to certify the results of the Electoral College. They were joined by a slew of other companies, including Marriott, the chemicals giant Dow, AT&T, Coca-Cola, and about a dozen others. Melania Trump vaguely condemned the violence of the Capitol in a strange statement in which she also wrote how inspiring it was to see such passion and enthusiasm about the election. Apparent to her statement, what was really shameful, however, was the way she was treated. Quote, surrounding these tragic events, there has been salacious gossip, unwarranted personal attacks, and false misleading accusations on me for people who are looking to be relevant and have an agenda. It is thought that Melania is referring to reports that she was focused on a photo shoot of her rugs while the riot was taking place. Day 1454, January 12th. Fallout continued in D.C. as pressure continued to grow on Republicans to get Trump to quit. House Democrats formally introduced an article of impeachment. Republicans blocked a separate move to formally call on Vice President Pence to strip Trump of power under the 25th Amendment. That measure now goes to the full House, where it will pass. The FBI also warned of plans for armed protests at all 50 state capitals and in D.C. in the days leading up to President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration, stoking fears of more bloodshed after last week's deadly siege. That report, reinforced by Site Intelligence, which is the world's leading extremist tracking group, says that Trump-aligned militants are now planning for civil war. The New York State Bar Association said it had begun investigating Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, over his involvement in a rally that led to the riot at the Capitol. The move is likely to lead to his removal from the group. Giuliani told the crowd, quote, let's have trial by combat. Major corporations continued to strike Congress in its wallet. AT&T, Blue Cross, Morgan Stanley, and Dow Chemical all said they would suspend all PAC contributions to Congress. Facebook, Microsoft, Coca-Cola, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, and Goldman Sachs also joined in a pause. Facebook also began removing content using the phrase, Stop the Steal. Twitter also purged some 70,000 QAnon-linked accounts yesterday. Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf resigned, becoming the third cabinet-level official to quit. Wolf claimed his resignation was, quote, warranted by recent events, including the ongoing and meritless court rulings regarding the validity of my authority as acting secretary. In fact, federal judges have repeatedly found that Wolf was installed illegally, and as a result, his rulings are null and void. And Secretary of State Pompeo was told he was not welcome to come to the European Union. Pompeo has been trying to spend the final days of the Trump administration puffing his own resume. The European Commission told him that no EU official would meet him. Luxembourg Foreign Minister Jean Asselborn also canceled a meeting with Pompeo telling him that, quote, Trump was a political pyromaniac who must be brought before a court. Day 1455, January 13th. In his first public remarks since a mob stormed the Capitol, Trump showed no remorse or regret for instigating that mob. Instead, Trump claimed his remarks to a rally beforehand were totally appropriate and that many people agreed with that and that a new effort by Congress to impeach him was causing, quote, tremendous anger. Instead, Trump claimed that the protests against racial injustice over the summer were the real problem. 
In a related story, Mitch McConnell, once one of Trump's most stalwart allies, is said to be supportive of and in contact with House Speaker Pelosi regarding Trump's impeachment. McConnell also has been in contact with President Biden about a quick resolution. The House is voting today to formally charge Trump with inciting violence against the country. House Republican Conference Chair Liz Cheney said tartly, I will vote to impeach the president. The FBI has raised alarms about the threat of violence one day before the riot at the Capitol, raising new questions about why law enforcement was overwhelmed. The new report also undercuts statements made by Stephen D'Antonio, who's the head of the FBI's Washington field office. He told reporters last week there was no indication that Trump's rally would cascade into a mob action. Since the riot, the FBI has warned that armed protests are likely in all 50 states. Prosecutors say they are now looking to charge hundreds in the aftermath of the riot. Congress was also briefed on the active threats involving the Capitol and specific members of Congress. That briefing is said to have left lawmakers alarmed and fearful of re-entering D.C. There are reportedly a number of threats from militia groups, including one seeking revenge for the death of Ashley Babbitt. She was a QAnon supporter and a woman who was shot and killed by a Capitol police officer outside a House chamber last week. At least three congressmen have tested positive for COVID after sheltering a place during the riot, including Illinois Rep. Brad Schneider. Schneider said in a statement that several Republican lawmakers in that room adamantly refused to wear a mask. Trump visited the city of Alamo in Texas to tout his border wall as a promise made, promise kept by his administration. In fact, despite promising a big, beautiful wall, Trump only managed to build 40 miles of wall on a near 2,000-mile border. Trump spent more than $15 billion on that wall project. A Voice of America White House reporter was reassigned hours after asking Secretary of State Pompeo whether he regretted saying there would be a second Trump administration after President-elect Joe Biden won. Patsy Witzkiewicz asked the questions during Pompeo's speech on VOA. A group of anonymous whistleblowers had filed a formal complaint last week over Pompeo's visit, saying it was propaganda that the intention to broadcast the address over VOA's airwaves was a violation of newsroom protections for editorial independence. Day 1,456, January 14th. The House impeached Trump for the second time in an unprecedented action, charging him with inciting a violent insurrection against the U.S. government. Ten ranking Republicans joined Democrats to charge him with high crimes and misdemeanors. The House adopted one single article of impeachment, voting 232 to 197, to charge Trump with inciting violence against the government of the U.S. and requesting his immediate removal from office and disqualification from ever holding one again. The Senate is now scheduled to take that case up next week. Minutes after the House voted to impeach him for a second time, Trump held a private ceremony in the Oval Office to award the National Medal of the Arts to country singer Toby Keith. Unemployment sharply increased last week. A total of 1.15 million workers filed new claims for state unemployment benefits during the first full week of the new year. The Trump administration said it would slash millions of acres of protected habitat designated for the imperiled northern spotted owl in Oregon. Much of the land is in prime timber locations in Oregon's coastal ranges. New York City has terminated its contracts with Trump's company to run a carousel to ice rinks and a golf course in Central Park. That decision, which will cut off the Trump Organization for businesses that bring in $17 million a year in revenue, makes the city the latest business partner to cut ties with Trump's company. Trump was reportedly planning to set up a parlor account under the pseudonym Person X. 
that claim was buried in court filings in support of Parler's case against Amazon Web Services, which pulled support from the network this week and caused it to drop offline. Parler CEO John Mintz claims that AWS was aware of Trump's plans, so it abandoned Parler to prevent him from gaining a new platform. Trump told people to stop paying Rudy Giuliani's legal fees and demanded he personally approve any reimbursement for the expenses Giuliani incurred while traveling on the president's behalf to challenge election results in key states. Trump apparently did not appreciate a demand from Giuliani for $20,000 a day in fees for his work attempting to overturn the election. 64% of Republicans say they support Trump's recent behavior. 57% of Republicans said Trump should be the 2024 GOP candidate for president. 17% think he should be removed from office. Overall, Trump's approval is at just 34%. That is the lowest in four years of tracking his job performance. These are the Trump Diaries. The Pocket Guide to Hell chatted with Preservation Chicago's Ward Miller about the challenges facing architectural preservation in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Are buildings really that important when people can't use them? And should cities spend money on architecture during such tough times? Pocket Guide to Hell, Lumpen's newest show, airs Thursdays at 9 a.m. So for those out there uh, among our listeners who aren't familiar with your organization, Preservation Chicago, can you tell us briefly about like who you are and, and how you came into being and what you see as kind of your, your mission? Sure. So uh, Preservation Chicago uh, came together in uh, 1999 uh, and 1998 and then uh, became a, uh, and, in, and even into 2000. And about, about 2001, we became an, an official non-for-profit organization. We were founded to focus strictly on uh, buildings within the city limits of Chicago um, and, and focusing on just that area because uh, so many of our preservation partners had a broader mission. Uh, we have a sister organization, it's a statewide partner, and of course the national partner, the National mm -hmm. Trust for Historic Preservation. But we really thought that there should be an organization exclusively uh, dedicated to Chicago um, and celebrating and honoring and, and, and trying to protect its great architectural legacy, as this is one of the great American cities, and it's so well known across the world for its architectural uh, strides and its legacy. Uh, from you know the earliest balloon frame houses houses to uh, you know the work of Adler and Sullivan, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Burnham and Root, Halliburton and Roche, uh, and it goes on to you know Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. Really, a city of architecture, and we thought that um, it needed its own advocacy organization to encourage preservation, not only those iconic downtown buildings and structures by, if you will, architects, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, but also buildings of neighborhoods. And so we strive to uh, work with neighborhoods and communities across the city uh, to encourage landmark designation. We're regularly at uh, landmark commission hearings, and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're really proud of uh, the work we've been able to accomplish as a nonprofit organization. And everything we do is pro bono. Mm -hmm. We're supported by foundations and good people that uh, give to our organization to support us and our mission. So no galas, no big donation asks. Uh, we just, we focus on preservation 24-7. And, you know, one of the key things you do is, you know, you put out this list every year of kind of seven endangered. I mean, what's the, the, the criteria for putting together that list? I guess different levels of, of threat to this, you know, architectural legacy. 
Sure. No, um, that's a very good question. You know, um, in Chicago, we have a variety of different buildings that we look at uh, each year. First of all, we ask um, our membership and the general public uh, for suggestions of, of buildings that are or appear to be endangered for various reasons. Maybe they're uh, vacant and mothballed, um, or maybe there's you know a published threat. Uh, uh, somebody would want to demolish these and these buildings or these structures and replace them with something else. And uh, we we think there could be better. So we compile this list uh, each year, and uh, it's submitted by members of the public. Uh, we also take uh, headline items from newspapers and other media sources on endangered buildings. Mm -hmm. And we also have a very diverse board of 11 people from different areas of the city. And we ask our board members to also weigh in with uh, buildings that they see in their communities that they feel might be endangered. And from that, um, we have a voting process. And uh, from that voting process comes um, uh, about 25, which are narrowed down to seven each year. And that Chicago 7 idea is uh, sort of linked, if you will, tongue-in-cheek to, you know, Abby Hoffman and the mm -hmm. Chicago 7, the Chicago 7 trial, and, of course, uh, the Chicago 7 architects that responded uh, to the modernist movement uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the Chicago 7 architects. So uh, we, we've got a lot of references to 7, and usually about the seventh candidate uh, we found that uh, newspaper and uh, media sources lose interest. So we thought mm -hmm. seven is a good number. Uh, and then there are these landmark districts as well. Can you maybe sort of talk our listeners through the differences of, of these different designations and how that connects to preservation? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so the National Trust for Historic Preservation is a federal program, and it's, it's um, operated by um, the state of Illinois or mm -hmm. each state. I should say in Illinois, it's you know it's the Illinois Historic Preservation Agency in Springfield, um, and these uh, suggestions for individual buildings or districts are submitted, and they go through. Uh, they've got to meet a number of criteria. Uh, there's usually a long uh, form and process involved in this, and it goes through various uh, approvals, if you will. Uh, the National Register of Historic Places encourages preservation. Uh, but it doesn't really, if you will, demand it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really, um, it is a tool, and it's a very useful tool for not only that recognition and honor and getting the story out, but it also um, encourages uh, uh, various tax incentive programs that can help um, uh, under underwrite a historic preservation, uh, renovation, restoration, or reuse project. So, but the, the, being on the National Register does not protect your building from mm -hmm. demolition. Mm -hmm. And the only way to really protect a building, at least in the city of Chicago, from demolition is our local uh, designation, which is a Chicago landmark designation. Mm -hmm. And that can be applied to a house uh, or a building. And uh, if the house is very significant, let's say the Roby House, for instance, mm -hmm. that designation could extend to uh, areas of the interior. Mm. Or if it's a, a semi-public building like the Palmer House for Hotel, which is now uh, shut down by the pandemic and mm -hmm. uh, said to be in financial trouble, uh, it could it could also include the designation could also include not only exterior facades, 
but usually interior features like the lobby, mm-hmm. uh, the entry spaces, the grand ballrooms uh, within the hotel. The umpire room is another one. Uh, so the difference between um, a, a, an individual landmark is that it may be it may have more protections to the whole building envelope. Whereas if you're a, uh, a, a Chicago landmark within a Chicago landmark district, mm-hmm. for instance, the Pullman district, mm-hmm. uh, it really does look primarily at facades and roof lines. And that's true with most of the 60-plus uh, landmark districts across Chicago. It really protects the look, the feel, and the spirit of the district from the street as you're walking down the right-of-way. You can still add to the top of your building or to the back of your building. Uh, it, what we want to really, the exception, of course, would be at a corner mm-hmm. where you would have another elevation that may be protected. But in general, it's, it's trying to keep that look, feel, and spirit. And uh, so it mostly covers uh, facades. Uh, but if you're in a National Register district and you want a tax freeze, um, sometimes you can do, you can take advantage of that by restoring interior features as well or, or retaining them um, for your tax freeze or tax break, if you will. And there's a whole process to that. Download complete. Now playing Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. We've all heard of the recent, the recent, uh, 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 protests, coup, demonstrations, uh, the breaking into the Capitol. The, the, uh, the event that occurred yes, in Washington, D.C. We don't want to use political terms for yes. it, like coup or insurrection. Right. It was an event, a a, um, a, a, a data point, right. perhaps. A bubble. Um, so it, it was something, the event that happened uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Lots of people had different opinions on it, and we're not going to talk about the opinions. What I'm excited about is I'm very, very excited that this happened. Uh, because what I want to talk about is uh, because this happened, and we, we don't talk about these things until, you know, we, we have, we, scientists don't talk about things until they have the data in front of them. But all those models that I've talked about, PolySci Labs and New Media Laboratories have been collaborating on hundreds, thousands of, of separate political forecast simulations using all these data, data this, this data in, in new and different ways, and trying to effectively make better models, as I've said. Well, I didn't want to. I, I didn't believe it when I first saw the data a few weeks ago, but it, it would surprise you. I want you to sit down, Rowan. I, I am already seated. Okay. Well, as it turns out, about sixty percent. Again, I didn't want to believe it, but sixty percent of those models that we were that we were speculating that we were looking at that we developed predicted this exact event. In in almost in almost perfection in, in the clearest sense. Well, that is actually quite um, that's quite compelling. So that, that that's very fascinating. What are you, um, what was were there differences therein, or how how spot on was this prediction? Because the fact that these models were able to predict an yes. event of this Six, style 60%. in general is impressive. But how impressive is it? Well, so yeah, more than half predicted that this event would take place. Um, eighty percent um, of those were were all, like almost almost exact key for key. There was some certain variations based on things like 
shirt color and uh, number of people. We don't, you know, we're still monitoring some of that data that's coming out, uh, 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 different responses, different statements. We, we foresaw that somebody who said, somebody who said, hey, over here, we expected them to say, look over here, like sort of small things like that. Well, and of course, those discrepancies are to be trained against, I imagine. So the next time that this event happens, it'll be, um, you'll have perhaps 70, 75% of your models predicting that this will happen. Yeah, and and because we have so much success, uh, uh, we've really been thrown into into taking this data. We don't want to lose it. We want to reflect on it, and we want to make it better. We we have something here, and it takes uh, some collaboration between uh, poly science labs and new media labs to really get down, and hopefully one day we'll be able to predict every political event that ever happens everywhere in the world. And that is a very laudable goal, certainly. Mm-hmm. Something that would take a lot of the guesswork, I think, out of for the majority of people out there who feel uncertain about right. the future, uncertain about what the government will be doing. But you'll be able to step forward and say, this is how it's going to play mm-hmm. out. Here it is. Yeah. It just accept it, you know, come to terms with it. Exactly. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.